Well, good morning. morning. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis 44. Now, what I'm going to ask is, hold a finger there because that's where we're going to be, but then go to 37. So we're going to be in chapter 44, uh, but go to chapter 37, beginning at verse 18. And not Exodus. It happens, okay. 37, verse 18. And they saw him from a distance. And before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Then they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. So now come and let us kill him and cast him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and and delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not strike down his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but do not put forth your hand against him, that he might deliver him, that that he might deliver him out of their hands to return him to his father. Now it happened when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and cast him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it, and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted up their eyes and saw, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with camels and bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh going to bring them down to Egypt. And when Judah Judah said to his brothers, What gain is it that we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened. Our father, as we return back to this This study, Lord God, this series in the book of Genesis of beginnings, Lord, I I pray that the truth that we find in chapter 44 today, God, would, would profoundly have an effect on us. And Lord, would give us an intense, sustaining hope in your power. I pray for your rich blessing and that, Father, through your Spirit, you would kindly illumine our minds to that which is true. In Jesus' name, amen. So now turn to chapter 44 in Genesis. I always find it fascinating. I always have since I was a little kid when I watched a movie, and the movie began with some kind of a flashback whether it was from part one or something of that nature, but where it started back, and usually the screen goes a little fuzzy, and then there's a flashback to something that took place. That's what I wanted to do in reading chapter 37 this morning, is that I want to give you a flashback. I want you to remember the 
the tears, the difficulty, the harsh reality of what happened to Joseph at the hands of his own brothers. As these men saw him coming, and in their heart, guys, in their hearts, they've already planned to kill him. Here comes this dreamer. Here comes this guy who thinks he is the one massive interpreter of all dreams. Well, let's see what happens to his dreams when we get our hands on him. They bring him in. They are going to kill him. Then they say, no, let's throw him in the pit, throw him in the pit, leave him there for good. Judah says, no, don't do this. He is our brother after all, and we could make money off him. So let's sell him off. And they strip that tunic off of him, that picture of father's favoritism of this man. And they eventually then sell him into slavery for silver. They go to their father. They never actually tell him a beast tore him up, but by the garment with goat's blood on it all torn up, Jacob says, obviously, an animal has trashed my son. He's destroyed. He's ruined. And Jacob mourns with incredibly bitter weeping, and the brothers let it lie. Okay, so let that just kind of settle, that note of that scene. Now we're going to go and walk through chapter 44 after everything we've been covering thus far. Look at verse 1. Verses 1 to 6 is the first piece we're going to take. Then he commanded his house steward. This is Joseph. The boys have come back. They want food. And um, the last thing we heard at verse 34 was that they were drinking freely or freely drinking. The literal interpretation or translation would be they were intoxicated. The, uh, uh, a newer translation would say hammered. <laughs> they were very much drunk and silly to the point of absolutely uh, checked out. During that time, verse 1, he, Joseph, commanded his house steward saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. No problem so far. Now put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As the morning light broke, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. Now they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Arise, pursue the men. You shall overtake them and say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from, whom, from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses to interpret omens? You have done evil in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. All right, so what's going on here? We've got all the brothers the next morning or just before light was going to break. All this is taking place where they are have their sacks filled, they have food, their money was given back to them, and Joseph says to his house steward, I want you to put this silver cup, I want you to put it in the sack of the youngest, okay, so Benjamin. And and then let them take off. Let them get out of the city for just a little bit, and then here's what I want you to do. Pursue them, go after them and say, why have you repaid evil for good? Now, you read this and you go, this Joseph's a jerk. (laughs) This is harsh. What is he doing? What a trick. Well, I want to be careful not to read a poor motive into the text, into Joseph. What I actually believe he's doing here is he's setting up a test for his brothers. 
What he's doing here is he wants to see the genuineness of his brothers if anything has changed, if there has been change in these men. If you think about it, guys, and if you were to take two columns and just track down the columns of the selling of Joseph and this setup for Benjamin, you see the same idea. Here's another son, a son of Rachel, a favored son, uh, one that potentially the brothers could be extremely jealous of. I mean, my goodness, think about, think about everything that's been said by Jacob so far in reference to Benjamin. No, no, you can't take him, you can't take him. Then who am I going to be left with? Well, Dad, we're your kids too. <laughs> yeah, 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 but who would I be left with? Uh, I've already lost Joseph, I'm not about to lose Benjamin. That favoritism is absolutely present there with Benjamin, just as much as it was with Joseph, if not more because Joseph had died, according to Jacob. And so, eventually, he says, take him, and if I'm bereaved of him, then I'm bereaved of him, of Benjamin. So they take Benjamin with them. So now the potential with this test that Joseph has set up, the idea is, I want to see if these men will say, oh, yeah, you can have Benjamin over this silver issue. And you can take him and make him your slave as long as we're set free. Then they would be doing exactly what we just read in chapter 37. We're first, and whatever happens to him, let it happen to him. Now, I don't know, and it would be wrong for me to say that I know all of the motives in the mind and in the heart of of, um, Joseph here. Is it possible that there is some fleshly want to see them suffer here? Well, I mean, he's human, right? I I got to deal with that and say, yes. Did he get any kind of sweet pleasure in seeing them sweat? It's possible. But I will say, my opinion is that top-tier motive for Joseph truly is to see where are my brothers at? Where Where are their hearts at? Is there a change? And will they treat Benjamin in the identical way they treated me? So he derives this scheme, and this trap is set up, and they perfectly walked into it. Now, think about this. As they're traveling, what, a, what an event. They showed up in great fear and trembling. Remember, they showed up and said, we didn't know, we didn't know, we paid the money, no idea, we didn't know. And the steward says, shalom, peace be on to you. Come on, we're going to go, we're gonna go and meet with uh, the second in command of Pharaoh. Oh boy, why are we going to his house? And then they go to his house, and they give him a feast. Not only a feast, but it sounds like that they did a lot of drinking to the point where their hearts were merry, they're rejoicing. This is fantastic. They get up, hey, your donkeys are already packed, we've got all your stuff, all your money, everything is set, and you get to take Benjamin with you, and you get to take all the brothers are going back, rejoice, enjoy, and take off. Maybe they were singing on their donkeys as they rode out of the town with such great joy. One of the brothers looks behind them and goes, hey, there's a writer behind us. Oh, it's the steward. I wonder what he's coming at us for. Look down at your Bibles, verse 7. Well, 6. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servant to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we had in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you uh, from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. 
Now, I don't think that that, what I think that is, is a word of confidence from these guys, right? Because all they're saying is, you know what? We know we have been utterly honest with you. We know that there's no trickery here. We know that we are some of the most joy-filled brothers in the world right now because we've got Benjamin, we've got provisions, we've got our money, and we have all of us together going home. We would never even think of stealing from him. The grace and kindness has been shown to, uh, to us. We would never even think of stealing from him. So I'll tell you what, you find anything, I dare you to try to find something in these sacks. And if you do, then the one that has it can be put to death. And the rest of us, since we're all in cahoots, since we're all together, will all be your slaves. How about that? How about a word of confidence in that word that's stated? Now, it's interesting because notice the house steward doesn't agree. Look what he says. <clears throat> Verse 10, so he said, now let it be also, or let it also be according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, but the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried, each man brought his sack down to the ground, and each man opened his sack, so he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. I just cannot help but picture all the brothers lined up. There's the sacks that they have in front of them, arms crossed. And they do the oldest. And you go, hmm, told you. Next one, hmm, told you. Next one, seriously, guys, you're going to check the rest? Okay, go ahead. Hmm. And they keep going down the line. By the way, if you're ever traveling internationally, keep your baggage next to you. Because anything could be planted in there. <clears throat> And then they eventually get down to the youngest, and the entire flavor of the moment completely changes. The exhilarating joy of going back to dad with everything our hearts desired turns into absolute ash in their mouth. The sweet taste that they had in this moment is now completely destroyed in this moment. To the point that the response of the brothers is to literally grab their clothes and tear them. Which is a very, uh, it's a common practice. We've actually seen it in this book. Remember when they went and told Jacob what had happened to Joseph, Jacob took a hold of his garments and rent them. He tore his clothes. And now here's the brothers and they see that cup in Benjamin's sack and their response is to literally grab their clothes. What they're doing, guys, is very, it's pretty clear. It's an act of emotional outburst that it is so strong and so deep what is pulsating through their mind and heart, they have to do something physically. And so they grab their coats and they tear them. Look down at your Bible. Verse um, 12. So he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. We're going back. Not their city, we're going back to Joseph's city. Then Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, so they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed interpret omens? So Judah said, What can we say to you, my Lord? 
What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Listen to what Joseph says. But he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace. To your father. You see how he's holding out the opportunity to these guys? I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep him, but here's your freedom. Go in peace. Relax. You're just sticking it to the youngest. Just leave him. It's fine. You don't have to worry about him. Just worry about yourselves. This has actually panned out well for all of you. The opportunity is there. Just reach out, grab that sinful desire, and run with it. This test has been beautifully crafted by Joseph to see what they will do in response. Reminds me of a little story I heard a number of years ago where a pastor was getting on a bus. This was in a big city, and he got on a bus, and he gave the bus driver the... I think he gave him... uh, I forget how much money... But the bus driver gave him way too much change, like a lot, quite a bit of change. And the preacher put it in his pocket, didn't even look at it, put it in his pocket, then went and sat. And as they're traveling, the preacher was on his way to get off the bus, and he reached in his pocket, and he looked at it, and he goes, man, that is, that's a lot more money than I anticipated getting. That's too much money getting back. And so as he's walking and going to get off the bus, he turns to the driver and says, hey, real quick, you gave me way too much change, and I, I just want to make sure that you know, I want this to be right, the ticket I paid for and how much I pay. So here's the money. This needs to go back to you. And the bus driver encouraged him and said, well, I just wanted to let you know, I was at church last Sunday, and I was curious to see if you practiced what you preached and if you were going to actually walk in integrity. And so I did that on purpose, just to see how you'd respond to that. Beloved, I heard a great quote this week, and it has really just been ringing in my ears. The Christian is never off duty. You don't, you don't check out. You don't put it in neutral. You are always on duty. You're walking before the Lord. You're walking before a watching world. You're walking before a watching church. And I don't give that as a guilt trip. It's just the simple point that there's no neutral. We're, we're, we are believers who need to be in the moment, awake, for the days are evil. And so here's Joseph Steward, and here's Joseph. Joseph has officially given them the easiest of opportunities to just cut bait and run. Now listen to what happens. 18. Then Judah came near to him. Still, none of them know it's Joseph. And said, Oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. So he, in other words, I know who I'm approaching. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father with a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. 
And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, if your youngest brother does not come down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it happened that when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if, your youngest brother, if our youngest brother is not with us. Then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in evil. So, this is a reiteration, a retelling of the facts, if you will. Judah's pleading the case. I want you to notice this, you guys, that Judah's first impulse was not even, a, it's nowhere in the text anywhere that he even considered leaving Benjamin. Where he was the one that said, I got an idea. Let's not kill Joseph. Okay, let's not kill him. Let, let's sell him and make a profit off of him. But here in this text, in reference to Benjamin, his response was, I know you're second in command, and I know who you are, and I have full respect for that, but can I approach you? Can I just have your ear for a moment and just open up the facts to you and what, what's been going on? Remember, you asked these questions. Remember, you said this. Remember, you said this. And what's interesting is you have Joseph's angle, which he totally knows what he's doing. And then you have this angle of the brother that has no idea what's going on. It's a genuine test. It's a real test to see, is this legitimate? Have you, gentlemen, truly changed? Uh, let's see, 27. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out for me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in evil. So now, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy's not with us, and his life is bound up in the boy's life, so it will be that when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. There's a, a tenderness you can, you can grasp in the, in the text itself as he speaks of his father. He's our dad. He, he's older. He's, he's, he's been already brokenhearted. We watched his bereavement. We sat there. We heard the loud moaning that night while he was in the other room as he moaned and sobbed over the death of the first son. You, you see, sir, we, we can't do that to him again. We can't do that to him again. Because we were the ones who did it in the first place. It's interesting to me, this is one of the first times you see the brothers make reference to God, where they say that God has brought this back on them. God has brought this back to them. This evil that we've done, 
is returning. We're not getting away with this. There are things going on here that is out of our hands, out of this man's hands, and in the hands of Almighty God. Really quick, side note, just for an interesting little thing. It's debated whether or not Joseph truly practiced divination with the cup. Because if you read what Joseph has to say every time he gives a dream interpretation... He even corrected Pharaoh when he said, only God gives the interpretation. So did something dramatic happen to Joseph that now he's like, you know what, I know I have God, but this cup is pretty cool, so I'll go do it this way. I I don't think so. Uh, Rather, I think what's happened is his name was changed. He's given the full appearance as as a prince, as a leader there in Egypt. And so in reference to the cup, that may have been his cup, and it may have been a cup that was usually practiced for divination among those people. But I have a tough time thinking that Joseph started looking, because what they would do is they would pour wine or water in the cup, and then based on what they would see and the design of what was in the cup, it would help them interpret the future, okay? We can look at that and go, that's crazy. Well, there's a lot of that kind of goofball stuff in our own day, so let's be careful. Um, But... I think what Joseph is doing is that this this plays beautifully into the disguise before the brothers. Joseph is not asking witchcraft to lend a hand when he has a sovereign of the universe backing him throughout the entirety of the story. So I don't buy that. But nonetheless, that would be one of the more valuable pieces that could have been stolen. And so it ups the ante. The stakes are super high on the brothers and what's going on here. And so this plea is given by Judah. Now, if you look down at verse 32, it says, For your servant became a guarantee for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the sin before my father all my days. So now, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a slave to my Lord. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a slave to my Lord and let the boy go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the boy is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? Beloved, do you hear what he just said? Compared compared to the flashback at the start of this message where Judah says, throw him in the pit, no, take him out of the pit, and then let's sell him. They make a profit, they lie to dad, the whole thing is this nasty scam flooded with jealousy, anger, bitterness. And now we see right here and we go, whoa, what he just said was, no, let Benjamin go back. Let Benjamin and the rest of the brothers go back and I will be your slave for the rest of my life for the sake of my brother and for the sake of my father. Now, I think it's a very cheesy answer if we look at that and we go, wow, he sure likes Benjamin more than he liked Joseph. (laughs) I don't think that's the answer. I'm convinced the answer has everything to do with the power of God and the work of God in the life of impossible men. Now, what's interesting about that is that, there, number one, and I'm, I'm, I, want to, I want to think about these points, okay? Number one, there is no such thing as concealed sin. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because haven't you heard sermons where somebody makes reference to concealed sin? 
And usually what's meant by that is a sin that's done that nobody else knows about, and so it's just, just me, I'm the only one that knows it, and so I hide that sin, that's my concealed sin. Beloved, can I remind you that the sovereign of the universe knows all things, sees all things, and is completely cognitive of everything? You're not fooling anybody. I'm not fooling anybody. There is no such thing as concealed sin. Almighty God, the one who we should be most concerned about, is the one who can see everything. But there's another point, and it's a point that is potent and powerful. In other words, it starts with P. The Lord in his grace will usually let your sin be clearly seen before men. Oh yeah, you may, you may get, get it over on a few people for a while, but the Lord doesn't let that last. He graciously wounds you. He graciously embarrasses you. God kindly brings things out when we say, no one will ever know. God in his kindness says, I'm not, I'm not going to let that happen to you, Dan. I'm not going to let you get away with that. I love you too much. And so here's the brothers. Remember, guys, over 20 years have passed. And these sins, this, this dark, dark, black-hearted sin that was done by them, the light is now shining upon it in so many ways. And it's going to be shown even more greatly as we walk through the rest of this book. But the Lord will not be mocked. And I, I'm, speaking, I'm not speaking down to anybody. I'm talking to Dan Mason right now. How the Lord applies it to you, your deal, and his deal. But the Lord will not be mocked when I say, it's not that big a thing. No one will ever know. He loves you too much. He's not going to let that go. Not only that, but then in eternity, we will be naked before him. We are now, and we will be. It was one of the more moving things said to me by a very, very important person. <clears throat> uh, I, I thank God for the emotion that he gives me, but I, sometimes it's like, man, just... <laughs> um, a very, very important person told me in the weeks they were dying... Um, let's get a, get a handle on myself here. In the weeks that they were dying, that sins of their childhood, their high school days, were returning. And... <clears throat> There's not too many people I look up to more than this particular individual. And as they knew they were dying, this individual was communicating to me that you never really conceal sin. Even sin that I thought I got away with 55 years ago. God's bringing back. Why? To, to, to just pour on guilt? No, I don't, I don't think that's the answer. But I think God loves us too much. I think the Lord will consistently bring our sins to us. Our sins will be before us to consistently press us towards the truth of the gospel. 
If the end result is just, I feel terrible, well, whoop-de-doo, that doesn't do anything. Rather, I think what happens is God in his grace loves us so much, he'll bring the sins, he'll make it evident, he'll show us our, our fallenness, our depravity, and we'll go, man, I need Christ. And for this brother, he was on his way to be face-to-face with his Savior, and God in his grace was bringing to his reminder, don't forget, you've not paid me back one cent in reference to your sin. Jesus Christ was the only one who could satisfy that payment. And so for us to come to this passage and you look at the brothers and you go, this is a different batch of people. Yeah, it is. Because God has graciously been at work. I'm not saying they're perfect men in chapter 44 and terrible men in 37. I'm saying they're terrible men who have been becoming cognizant of their of their sin. And so when I read Judah here, I see evidence of grace. I see the evidence of God's grace. You watch some of the cool old shows and Columbo walks in and the murders happen and he starts looking around and he wants to see what what evidence do I have around here? What are some of the clues of who's been in this room? Um, (laughs) It's kind of a funny little story, but When Amber and I were in Kettle Falls, um, Pastor Tony, one of my dearest friends and mentor, we always knew if he had carried Maggie because he wore musk cologne. And so when we went home, we had little musk baby. (laughs) (laughs) And there was evidence that Pastor Tony uh, was packing around Maggie because that fragrance, that aroma of his aftershave was everywhere. Well, beloved, as I read Judah's words, I cannot help but see the fingerprints of God all over this man. Again, not a perfect man, but a different man, a changed man. And so what I come away with from this brief chapter, it makes me want to write a book. And the book title would be, You've Got to Be Kidding Me. And each chapter would be on an impossible individual that God's sovereign grace penetrated. Somebody whose heart had been turned from heart of stone to heart of flesh. As you read some testimonies of people and you go, man, there's just no way. These are some nasty, nasty creatures. Go back, read chapter 37, read what these brothers did. And then as we were to go through that chapter, ask the question as if you didn't know the rest of the story, how much hope you got for these guys? None. These are bad men, really bad men. And so this book, you've got to be kidding me, would be a book of those who can only be saved by a miracle. Now, here's a statement. That includes every single saved individual. Because, beloved, that's the statement that was made to our Lord when the disciples said, well, if they can't be saved, then who can be saved? And the Lord said, that which is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, here's the interesting part that just levels all of us. We are these brothers. We flatter ourselves as if we weren't, but we, we are. I know what's in my heart. I know what's in my heart apart from grace. I know that the sovereign king is the one who has 
come in and he has taken that heart of stone in Dan's chest, give him a heart of flesh and give him love and affection for Jesus. His fingerprints are there, just as his fingerprints are here. That, that book would include every single believer throughout the entire history of God's people. For nobody can ever claim that they helped God in their salvation. The sovereign of the universe did it, period. Now, chapter 45, I'm going to stop there for this morning because the rest of this is uh, way, way too precious. I don't want to rush through it, so let me, let me pray.